from whence come wars and fightings among you? Don't they come from your desires? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it. Welcome to Grace Archie with Jim Babka, sponsored by the Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org. I'm your host, Bill Protzman, here on the AHO Radio Network. The Apostle James revealed the source of conflict and violence. Jim believes Rene Girard explained the mechanisms at work and did it far, far more in the process. It's no exaggeration to say that Rene Girard's mimetic theory and scapegoat mechanism are the anthropological underpinnings of this show, the show we call Grace Archie. We're going to keep coming back to this topic, so this whole episode is an evergreen grace point. Jim, let's start here. You've been on this journey for more than a decade, and very early in that process, you discovered Rene Girard. Tell us that story. Well, thank you, Bill. I, Ron got booed uh, speaking to a Republican audience full of Christian right folk in 2012 while he was campaigning for president. And I was watching this on live TV when it happened. He invoked the golden rule, uh, said that there should be a golden rule for foreign policy. And then the crowd booed and catcalled and got very upset. And I, this was in January. I was stunned. I, I just, I, I was dumbfounded by what I had just witnessed. It bothered me. And it sent me on an intellectual and spiritual journey that I, today I want to share. So shortly after Ron invoked the golden rule, just a couple of months uh, right after that, I published an open letter. Uh, it, it was uh, about the golden rule. I wrote an article. And it was, uh, I, the response to this letter was fascinating to me because I got called to be on, it went a little bit viral and I got called to be on some radio shows. And every one of these shows that I was on, there was a host involved that was secular, was not a believer. And they would tell me at the end of our discussion, if this is what Christianity was, I'd be a bit more interested. And along the way uh, in this journey, I came up with the following phrase that it turned into a meme. If you speak up for the golden rule, when the establishment says you must hate, it will be religious people, quoting from sacred text, who will throw the first stones at you. That is just weird because religious people are supposed to be accepting and loving and all of that, right? Yes. So uh, because I'm curious about this and just to digress for a second, but what was the context of the Ron Paul comment? It was foreign policy uh, portion of a Republican presidential debate. He was one of the candidates on the stage. I remember this now. Yes. Thank you for jogging my memory. And he was like doing others. Okay. So we'll leave that aside for just now. Back to speaking up for the golden rule. So how exactly did that lead you to find Rene Girard? <laughs> so life's accidents are really interesting to me. Uh, and maybe this is an accident. Maybe it's Providence because it set me on a journey. And I don't know the precise day. I, I, I actually suspect it was about March 1st of 2012. That's how important this moment is to me. I, I, I was reading a bit about Jacques Ellul. And he's a, a French philosopher, a French anarchist philosopher. And I stumbled across an academic article that introduced me to Rene Girard. 
I'm tracking all the all this, and the name dropping is going to be intense. So I'll put all of that in the show notes. If you're listening to this and you want to know who these people are, they'll be listed in the show notes. So not to worry. But Rene Girard is not exactly a household name himself, right? He's a Stanford professor at one point. He had a great deal of influence on a guy named Peter Thiel. But his interest was this mimetic theory and scapegoat mechanism. All the stuff we're going to get to here. And in the process, this theory does something really rare. It comes up with a unifying theory, like a consilience of several disciplines, right? Yes, 100%. So, you know, what Rene Girard does is discover an anthropological law, and he finds it in both ancient and relatively modern classical literature. Uh, so he's he's assigned, uh, he comes to the United States, uh, starts out at Indiana University. He ends up at Stanford before his career is over, but he starts at Indiana University. And because he's French, because he's European, they say, we want you to teach a course in the continental classics of literature. He puts the course together. It was all books that he had read before, but now he's reading them in a different light, getting ready for, for his class. And he begins to notice that there's a pattern in there. He notices that the desires of the actors are mimetic. Uh, that is, the characters pursue those things that other, others have. You think mimetic, you should think imitation as we're talking. And this seeing what other people have leads to rivalry and then to conflict. And the conflict is necessary for a good story, right? So Gerard wonders if the pattern says something about human nature. Why, is, why do these books have such enduring value and why are they connecting with their audience, in other words? So the pattern uh, Gerard discovered was common to great novels, and he observed that the greater the writer, the more he or she conformed to the pattern, which he labeled mimetic desire, which will be the primary thing we're going to talk about today. Basically, characters get their desires from others. And Gerard began to wonder if this mimetic desire pattern was, if it was so important to novels, might there be something kind of very natural, very human about it? In other words, did it provide any meaningful anthropological explanations? So he has been called the Darwin of the social sciences. He's had one of the 40 seats in the Académie Française, and he died in late 2015, but his still growing fame in philosophy, sociology, and theology testifies that Bill, yes, emphatically, this pattern was useful. I'm down with this pattern because you can't make any music without some sort of tension. And the beauty of that is that it's released. So there's tension in novels and tension and all of these things that relate to what we're going to call conflict um, are a necessary part of human growth. Like even for myself, if I'm in trouble, I'm probably in conflict with something, with myself, with some other person. And to resolve that is like the way forward. So I get it in theory and I think I get it in practice, but break it down for us if you wouldn't mind. So mimetic theory begins with imitation. Imitation is the primary means of human learning. This is a so very, very important point. You do something like you're, we're playing tennis and you have this great serve or something, and I imitate that. That's mimetic. It mimetic, is. not mimetic, but mimetic. Yeah. Okay, and, gotcha. And why, and why would you have chosen to do that particular uh, form of mimesis? It's because you want to be better at tennis. You like my serve, so you want to be better at tennis, Right. Yeah. You, you pick up a desire to be better at tennis and you try to imitate me as your model. So what we're discovering is that the way also that our neural systems are designed, our brain 
there are things like mere neurons. Uh, we just discovered this in the last, you know, 30, 40 years that, that we have pattern recognition in our brains and that our brains light up more for the human face than any other object. Uh, the only thing that competes with, uh, in terms of the amount of electricity that goes on is, is something that is a hallucinogenic, uh, some kind of drug like that, or sex, right? The human face is that important. It's that powerful to us. And we are constantly looking for patterns in others that we wish to imitate. So the, Im the, the imitation process, and this is where my, my, this is the thing that begins to change my life is the recognition of this, is either empathetic, which is the focus of what I want to talk about probably more than anything is empathy. So there are, there are things that we can do that we, let's call the, these empathetic things pro-social. And then there are sociopathic concerns, which are antisocial, right? Well, the, these are people who don't care what they har whether like or not they harm other people. Imitating your tennis serve, trying to get better at that would be pro most Social? of the time, yes, but there, we're going to talk about where that can start to break down and cause trouble as well. Okay, just just, it, just so I'm tracking. Yes. So Gerard uh, usually classified imitation when he was writing as positive, Yeah. right? That's a yeah. good thing. You're imitating. That's so that's the one you're talking about with the serve. But he got into another area that we can call covetousness. Covetousness, right? It's that lust or obsessive desire for what the other has any cost. And this led to rivalry between persons. So I was reading up on this and I found this amazing quote. I'll just drop it in here and then you can keep on uh, expounding on this. But here's Gerard. If we ceased to desire the goods of our neighbor, we would never commit murder or adultery or theft or false witness. If we respected the 10th commandment, the four commandments that precede it would be superfluous. Oh, so this, oh, this, I love this. Okay. So I would go further than he goes. So you may have heard it said that there were 10 commandments. But I he, I tell you, there are only nine. So if you're reading through that list, there's a coda. There is a big emphasis at the end. It says, thou shalt not covet. So if you go back through the commands, right from the top, you're not supposed to covet God's power. You're not supposed to cover your covet your parents' power. You're not supposed to covet your neighbor's wife, his cattle, his goods, those things are all supposed to be off the table. So clearly, the thing that the Bible's trying to emphasize that the law itself is most interested in emphasizing is don't covet. Coveting is the problem. And I'm going to take this just one tiny, tiny step further to suggest to you that whenever you see the word sin in Scripture, and this is a unique thing, you're hearing this only here, it is talking about either rivalry covetous rivalry between persons or blame towards another from for uh the circumstances which they found this relationship issue this sin issue exists between god and man and it exists horizontally between human beings yeah. and it can get the most serious with those human beings who are closest in proximity to one another so gerard's concept here is that what we've called covetousness but just wanting what somebody else has is sort of like, you know, the root of all evil, but he's calling that mimesis, mimesis, right? Yes. Perfect. Yes. Okay. I'm on, I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Mimesis is imitation and it could, there could be good imitation, but there is also bad imitation. And, and sociologically speaking, just starting off sociologically, anthropologically speaking, just starting off there, all of us learn our desires from one another. Let me just be a hundred percent clear about what I'm trying to say here. Right. Yeah. You, 
you 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 have tastes that may belong to you. Like some people like broccoli and some don't. Okay. Some people like chocolate and amazingly some don't. Okay. So you may have uh, things that you like that you have taste wise. You have certain needs to breathe, to drink, whatever. When you get hungry, you get hungry. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the uniquely human things of how you decide that you want to wear a blue shirt or how you decide that you want to live in a certain city or how you pick a certain career or what car you drive and all this. All of this starts in imitation. There's something that we're, we're working from, the desires, the things we're dr- greatly trying to pursue that are most important in our lives. Those things we learn from imitation. We even determine the value of it. And this works very strongly like in a market economy, for example. Sure, We yeah. know that certain things are worth certain values, not because of the amount of labor that was put in them. We learn that they have value because others value them. And that's where the, the price is largely determined by how much uh, value other people place on an object. And then I learn how to fit into that and I can make, make my decisions from there. Let me roll with my tennis analogy for a second, because let's say I've learned to imitate your style and that works, but your racket is much better than mine. <laughs> so I say to you, hey, <laughs> <laughs> I want a racket like yours. Yes. And you say, great, there's the pro shop. Now, I know that that whole little transaction is part of mimetic theory. Can you mm-hmm. break it down for me so it fits into the Rene Girard model? Yes. Okay. So the, I want you, what, what the essential thing is, you can think of this in terms of a picture. Rene Girard thought of dra- desire as being triangular. There's three okay. objects to, to be aware of. There's the subject, number one, and that is the imitator. So in our example, you were the imitator. Yeah. Number two, there is the object, which was the racket in this case. And number three was the model, which is the, is, is, is the person, me in this case, who had the racket, what I, you want, what the, what you, the subject, the imitator wants, what I, the model has, you want the object that I have. Okay. Got let's, it. so let's make this easier and let's consider this triangle. So um, I'm going to say this again, another way, maybe to illustrate it. You did a good job providing me this example, but imagine we have Sam at one corner, we have Matt the, and he's the, uh, uh, and we have Matt the model at the other. So we have Sam the subject and Matt the model. And that leaves one corner, which is the object of their desire. So what Sam sees, what Matt really wants, the object that he, that he has, he wants it. And, you know, this could be a lot of things. Uh, typically this is a girl, right? Part of sure. the, you know, yeah. Yeah. right. I mean, we, again, we start seeking or liking or wanting things. And this is really true of, uh, male of, of attraction, couple oh, of sure. jealousy, you know, this is, this is yes. the core of that issue <laughs> right here. Okay. So now this is where we start to get into kind of the jealousy. And I, I want to make a distinction between, uh, jealousy and coveting or, uh, uh, there's another word I usually think of in this particular, uh, case, but the point is jealousy if you're just jealous, if that's all the things, Bill, you're jealous of me, then your jealousy would be satisfied by getting the object. So if you walked off to the pro shop and you got the racket, your jealousy would be satisfied. Well, that's let's fine say, when, there's a re- when there's a thing. Yes. Right? Well, let, what if it's a thing, though, that you cannot afford? Right. So for the sake of example, let's say I'm driving a, Safari, uh, a Ferrari 308 GTB. And you really, really would like to have that car. And moreover, as you start to think about it, you say, gee, Jim doesn't really deserve to have that car. Why does Jim have that car? And so you begin imagining in your head that I wrap that thing around a tree. Okay. 
this this happens in cultures this happens in personal relationships this happens in societies this happens between societies where they begin where they they be they become at risk literally of becoming rivals over the object another way that this can happen there's only one girl so maybe i've fallen in love with your wife right but she's yeah. your wife now imagine the trouble that that begins to cause Okay. Yeah, but except, you know, Billy Shakespeare had a good take on it. He said, to choose love by another's eyes. Yeah. That's almost Girardian. It, it, well, it's exactly it. So it's funny. He wrote a whole book about Shakespeare because he saw a lot in there. So, the, you know, this is a literature-based model. He, first, he sees it in, in European classic literature. Then he starts to go back and he sees it in the uh, fables and, and uh, uh, mythology, mythology in particular. He sees it in ancient mythology. And then he sees the pattern in Shakespeare, too. And Shakespeare is the greatest writer uh, of the English language. And it's just replete. There's just tons. I think he, he, he recounts 27 different stories in his book. Uh, so Girardian basics. We pattern ourselves after others. Uh, one of the earliest ones he uses in his very first book is Don Quixote de la Mancha. <laughs> and Don Quixote is imitating something he's read, which is the knight errant. He doesn't even yeah. exist. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, Amadis de Gala was his main influence. And uh, this is uh, <laughs> Gerard concludes man is the creature who does not know what to desire. Whoa, so hold he's on got a second there. Yeah. So it's what? It's a random weirdness in the universe that I want to, first of all, have a better serve. And secondly, want the equipment to do it well. That's just totally random or. I tend to think it's part of our design. This, this is part. This is what makes us uniquely human. Ah. So take, take, for example, build a dollar bill. Okay. Can you eat it? No, it's useless in terms of like nutritional Can value. You... Can you live on in underneath it? Make shelter from it? Yeah, you can't do any of these things. Does it transport you somewhere? Okay. And yet somehow it does all of these things. And it does it because we have the ability to abstract out the desire. And so we can see that it has desirability by other people. And we can then use it to trade. Because listen, we've talked about it in a previous episode. That thing has literally no value. It's backed by nothing. Okay. And it is not, it is not an object that has any intrinsic value attached to it. So what we would not be able to build the culture that we're able to build if we could not uh, abstract out the, these values and begin to think about the future in this way. And so I think this is core to who we are as human beings. That is the desire is core, right? Yes. Yes. So um, influencers, role models are just playing with our desire, like for oh. a, some giant pipe organ and they're hitting all of our notes to make us want things. Yes. Yeah, well, they are. Uh, and, 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 you know, this is a, the influencer model is very important in marketing. And I would argue that, you know, we should have matured somewhat as a culture. But, uh, you know, with social media, they become even more important. And there's people like, the, like Kim Kardashian who are making unbelievable amounts of money. and She's not alone. Uh, showing us what they're what what we should desire, um, but this is this there's a danger to this too, and that is that as the rivalries heat up, the distinctions in these three sections of the triangle get lost. Uh, so let's go back to that triangular concept. Gotcha. The, yeah, the closer that the model and the subject get to the object, 
the more and more the rivals become alike. Gerard calls them doubles. And I have particularly noticed this in politics, right? Um, <laughs> there, uh, my friend Perry Willis likes to say that irony is conserved in everything. And the irony in this case is that the when two people are fighting, they start to become very much like one another. They start using the same tactics. They start violating their principles in much the same way. In fact, they shed their principles and they get into this spiraling concept of, of, of one-upsmanship. You've just described Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, the, the, you know, they may be unaware of all the ways that they're falling apart and yep. all the ways that they're not doing what they're doing. They tend to not be aware while they're in it. And they start to make justifications even when it's pointed out to them for why this situation doesn't apply. This is a different case. But outsiders notice that they two things, that they are very much like each other. They sound similar to those people who are not in the fight. And second, they are obsessed with one another. They oh cannot God. let it go. They can't stop. It's like a dog with a bone. They just. Yeah. So if this happen. violence is let go, I mean, if this, I'm sorry, if this, if this rivalry is let go and it festers, it can lead and sometimes does lead to violence. But at a minimum, Sam, the subject, if not both Sam and Matt, the model will wish violence upon one another. Like you wanting to see me wrap my fancy sports car around a tree. I got you. I got you. So um, to get biblical for a second, I mentioned James the Apostle earlier, and I did that on purpose because James points out that the the source of violence here is murder, war, and coveting. Yeah. Um, And he's not alone in saying this. James is the brother of Christ. And I don't know if you remember that Jesus also speaks up and says, hey, don't take your brother to court. He said, if you call, if you, if you say, I hate my brother or call him a fool, You've already committed murder in your heart. And the uh, New Testament pattern for coming and having communion with one another was to first set aside your rivalries and sins. If you had something against a brother, set it down, go over and make that right before you take of the body and blood of Christ symbolically. So that would let uh, a lot of people out of church early on Sunday morning. <laughs> just saying, I'd be we'll have to have a ticket. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to have a phone bank set up and everybody can kind of walk out. And again, I'm, so, I'm yeah, really sorry. Phone a friend. Have communion. Yeah. I've lined up for communion. Can you help me out? It'd be like. <laughs> but, you know, there would be some health and catharsis to it. People who are in uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous or other anonymous type of uh, treatment program one of the things they have to do is they have to make things right. They have to Absolutely. first go confess it and then they got to go make it right. I've right? gotten those calls and they're beautiful when they happen. Yeah. Okay. So eventually bill, the violence between the rivals will become untenable to the bystanders. There'll be collateral damage even. So the, uh, or you just simply don't want to see your friends fighting anymore. And what ends up happening, the way that we have historically, from very ancient times, and this is what Gerard pulls out of the text, and it's, it most profoundly shows up in ancient mythology. There's a scapegoat who sought. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm going to say a ton here. I got a, bit, a lot to say. Uh, first, model and subject agree. They come to agree on one thing, and that is that they're going to blame some innocent party for their rivalry, and we call that, that party the scapegoat. The scapegoat is an innocent victim who gets sacrificed. Now we get the term scapegoat from the Old Testament. There was uh, they celebrate the uh, Yom Kippur. They they talk about the you know sending the the goat, the chosen goat. They put the sin on the goat and then they send it off into the wilderness. And of yeah. course, you know how's the goat going to survive in the wilderness? So it's a sacrifice, right? They get pushed out of the tribe. Yep. 
Sacrifice is the hallmark of the pagan system. And it's also, and this is the thing that's going to really rock everybody's world. You ready? I'm buckled in. It's the founding of religion. Okay, so hold on a minute. I've heard you say that before, but this is so important. So the scapegoat concept is the foundation of religion. Without that, we wouldn't have religion. Well, that's yep. the answer then. I mean, as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 but, but sacrifice, this, this idea that sacrifice is behind all of our systems right now is really critical to understand if, if yes. in fact it is true. And I suspect that, you know, brighter guys than me have probably given this some thought, including uh, Monsieur Gerard. Yes. So I, I, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, uh, covetousness and the word I could not think of earlier was envy instead of envy, jealousy. Yes, envy. Exactly. Okay. There's a distinction between jealousy and envy. Um, jealousy, you would be satisfied if you got my racket. Envy would mean you want me to, you want me to have my racket taken away, broken somehow. I should be harmed. Okay. You become obsessed with me as opposed to the object. Cause it's really about me. You're imitating me. Okay. So, uh, and by the way, don't my, I, my tennis serve isn't that great, but <laughs> Uh, this the other concept that goes that's twin to that is blame, and the scapegoat fills the role of blame for our troubles. The scapegoat can take many forms. It can be a person, and in past history, me in past history, we learned that maybe we don't have to kill persons, so we started to have animal sacrifice, and then uh, so the animal bore the burden. Uh, we don't do that very much anymore. Uh, so now it could be a person, or a demographic group of persons, or it can even be a foreign nation. Uh, that we do this. But as history has progressed, uh, we have found that it's things even like a book, uh, a religion, an idea. Um, but uh, but what we seek to do is destroy the scapegoat. And by doing this, we restore the peace. And all sides come to agree that the scapegoat was the source of the trouble all along. I can see where this would be complicated in politics. I mean, it's... Okay. I get it, but like, take us through the basics, like religion first, and then we'll get to the hard one. Okay. How, uh, does, this, how does this concept? Well, I mean, I understand. So Jesus died for our sins, right? And I want to say a whole lot of good that did, but that's a prime example of a religion found on a scapegoat. Yes, and we're going to talk about what makes that particular situation different. But first, let me uh, say that there's no way to do uh, the, the subject justice here in the time that we've got uh, available. Um, but as God permits, uh, we'll get to the role of sacrifice. We'll get to the role in culture, politics, state, and especially religion. I want to have an entire episode devoted to the scapegoat. I, 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 this is such an important subject. We got to break it down in its own uh, setting. Agreed. Um, it has, this is a subject that's vital. It's important. It's got huge implications and it frequently tends to get overlooked. But as part of the sacrifice, it is agreed. Um, there's one more thing I want to say about the sacrifice itself for now, and that is that it is agreed that that certain behaviors will be taboo or immoral from this point forward, and uh, that the scapegoat's destruction, secondly, must be remembered, and it literally becomes sacred. So those things that are sacred, again, grounded in some sacrifice that occurred earlier, so we have rituals to recreate the sacrifice, and these rituals are all around us. Yes, it, it, as you start to unpack them, I've become aware of that. Thanks to knowing you, I, I'm a jump ahead of the, you know, the average bear on this. But I can imagine someone out there right now saying it all sounds far-fetched. 
I mean, sure, sacrifice is a big deal. We no longer do human sacrifice. Well, that may may not be always the case. Right. Check our guns episode if you want to know about that. Yeah. And maybe we're blaming the wrong people, right? From for stuff that's happened in the past. But you know, sacrifice isn't normal now. So long after the sacrifice event is over, the rituals and taboos are remembered. And anyone who violates these uh, rituals and taboos becomes quite literally a threat to peace. Uh, we might not be able to explain why and, 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 I, and think, well, that's just the way it is. But I want to give you a concrete illustration that just happened in the last half dozen years. Do you know who Tim Tebow was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Tim Tebow was a professional NFL quarterback who every time he scored a touchdown, and he didn't have a very long career, but he was a mobile guy. He wasn't a very good quarterback, but he's a big guy and he was mobile. And every single time he was involved in a touchdown, he would run to the end zone, or if he was there already, uh, either way, once he was there, he would he would kneel yeah, in prayer say, to you. God yes. and say thanks. And this, by the way, created some cultural controversy, like he was imposing religion on other people. But there were a group of people, and I want to point them out right now. I'm literally going to, you know, if you were conservative, you're probably not going to like what I'm about to say, who endorsed Tim Tebow's display of kneeling as an act of honor and reverence and respect for God. Now, here's the name I really want to drive home. Do you, have you heard of Colin Kaepernick? Oh, my gosh. I'm a huge fan. I'll be just honest about it right now. All right. Colin Kaepernick also was not a great quarterback, better than Tim, Tim Tebow by quite a bit but still not a great quarterback. And uh, Colin uh, also knelt. He knelt on the sidelines before the game during the presentation of the national anthem. Now, this story is interesting to me uh, first because when Colin, uh, he, he sat on the bench the very first time he engaged in his protest, which was designed to call attention to the difficulties that African-Americans experience in this country, particularly with the police. And in so doing, uh, he had a, somebody, a veteran, who uh, reached out to him and said, dude, don't do that. It would be much more reverent if you knelt, because we kneel beside the graves of our fallen comrades. And so from that point forward, Colin and then many other NFL players chose the posture of kneeling. And this created a national scandal oh, that even involved story. the president and the vice president of the United States. It was nuts. All right. I want to make clear what's going on there. I want to show you this pattern in action culture-wide. I'm sitting watching YouTube one day, and I get a video that pops up. And, uh, you know, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, so I don't care for the Pittsburgh Steelers one bit. But this was a Steelers fan, and this was not just any Steelers fan. This was a guy who probably had 2000 maybe more dollars worth of memorabilia a varsity jacket, pennants, different, you know, this and that. And he's burning all of them because some players on the Pittsburgh Steelers had knelt during the national anthem. And he said he was done with the NFL. The NFL experienced a decline in its ratings that was precipitous for two years during this period. And they negotiated with the Players Association to come up with ways to express and get points out that mattered to these players and to give the players even the ability to celebrate their touchdowns in ways that they hadn't been allowed to previously, dancing and so forth, in return for getting all of them to agree to stop kneeling. Now, 
you got to ask yourself a question, Bill. What was so bad about kneeling? Why was the, exactly. in this particular case, was this irreverent? We stand during the national anthem because there's red in the flag. And the flag is a totem. And the totem is a remembrance of fallen soldiers. So this is literally disrespect for the dead. But so what, you say? Go one step further and say, so what? Because you know something that's interesting about those fallen? They're dead. They don't care. They're not speaking. They don't know. So why is this an issue? And this is the hard part for people to swallow. It's superstition. The peace that we have. How many times have you heard, they died for your freedom? You study history long enough, and we'll cover this in a show. We'll bring Perry Willis on at some point and talk about the history of U.S. intervention. You study history. You find out the politicians lied to us. They lied us into war. They false flagged us into war. Uh, they just, you know, left and right, and they weren't interested in actually the moral principles that they got us hooked on. They had completely different agendas to what they were doing, and they didn't even serve the moral principles that they said we were going to war for. And not a damn one of these wars, and I mean what I'm saying right now, had anything to do with U.S. citizen freedom. In fact, war is the health of the state, and freedom shrank in every one of these instances. So we believe, we don't believe in the truth, we don't believe in the facts, we are, but we are exercised beyond belief that one man or a couple of men don't pay the proper respect. And what might the war gods do or any other, the pagan gods, or who knows what it is, the superstition they believe, but the peace is being ruined, damn it. And we're going to use violence if we have to, to set them straight. Because by the way, there were people that wanted to do that too. They wanted to go fighting over the flag. That's right. Yep. Yep. I, I really appreciate this because this issue has not gone away and adding the clarification to it, tying it into uh, mimesis in this way is, is, is brilliant. Let's just face it. It's brilliant, but we've got to, we've got to take it one step further. This is a sacred ritual. I mean, the rituals, the practices that are part of us, we don't often question them. Right. And I think what you're saying is that it's worth questioning some of those assumptions. Yeah. And, and reckon, a recognition that the scapegoat does indeed calm things, right. It helps bring peace yeah. to, to what was a contentious situation. The problem is the piece in, uh, that's purchased through the scapegoat is only temporary because the scapegoat was never actually the cause of the conflict in the first place. Yep, that's our problem. The scapegoat's innocent, right? Yep. Um, and so before we act, I think we, we really must understand the scapegoat better. We've got a whole episode on that, like scheduled, because, yes, I agree with you. You're right. That there's a holy scapegoat, and then there's the kind of scapegoat that we see in politics all the time. So everyone, we're going to be back and we're going to do this again. You're subscribed, right? And if you haven't done so, click the bell so that you'll get a notice when the episode publishes. You won't have to keep looking for us. That way we'll stay in touch. And by the way, um, there's going to be comments. We want to know. And both Jim and I look at the comments and respond. So if you want to sound off on something, make it a good one and we'll give you a good response back. What's the one thing we can take away from today's conversation, Jim? Well, first, um, recognize that your desires come from others and do this, especially with those who make you upset or outrage you. When you feel anger starting to well, start to ask yourself. Yeah, don't questions. wait for Sunday communion, right? Yes. <laughs> be, be Sam the subject and see if you can figure out what object you perceive Matt the mediator has. Find them at the mediator in the situation, figure out what, their ob what the object is. 
that you, and, and that you believe that you should have instead, or that th things should be a certain way that you want them. You want control. You want them to be this way instead. Um, you might even uh, next, uh, but if you, and let me just say this also, if you value people over things, that's important. You got to value people over things here. Then you could take yourself off the path of coveting and onto the path of grace. Uh, the Girardian account is about imitation or mimesis, but first we must be examples of what we want to see in the world. And so you can model grace if you're self-aware. Second, this is something practical you can do. You can choose your friends and your associates. You can choose what you do with your time very, very carefully. Uh, I've learned this from another Girardian by the name of Luke Burgess. Uh, he wrote a book, and I will be honest with you, I haven't read it. I've listened to him on uh, several podcasts and watched a couple interviews on YouTube. And this is part of his, the advice that he gives. I think it's very practical. I can consciously choose how I spend my time and who I spend it with. And I can keep checking to see if those associations align with my values and my goals. Um, and it's really old fashioned advice. Your, your parents probably told you that, you know, you become who you hang around with, right? And it's now being brought back into vogue by our awareness that imitation is, is the source of our desire. Um, these are the things over which we have the most power and we can use these two tools. One is an awareness that we, when we're out upset, that maybe we have a desire issue that we have to, to deal with. And second, that we can choose who we're gonna imitate by choosing who we spend our time with. Those would be the grace points that I would leave us with today. Jim, it's been short, but I, you're starting to change the way that I see the world and taking it out of the like the angst and the conflict and being able to step back a little bit and say, oh, there's a framework here. And by the way, I'll get that framework in on top of the video. So when you're watching this, you'll get the illustration that Jim's been talking about. It's really important. It's really easy to understand. So thank you for that. Just want to remind everybody, catch our broadcast, like and subscribe, ring the bell. You'll get a notification. And uh, we're going to be back with part two of this, maybe part three. Until the next time, everyone, Grace, practice it, maybe. You can even be a model for others. Aho.